disciples said, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, when he returns, will he find faith on earth? The writer of Hebrews instructs us and says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. A few weeks ago, we read James chapter 2, and we read the words of James that say, faith without works is dead. And on the front of your bulletins this morning, I have this verse from 1 John. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Faith is at the core of being in a relationship with the triune God. Faith is at the core of our walk with God. And faith is likewise at the core of our acting for God, our doing for God. We, we hear the phrase thrown around casually, have a little faith. A situation confronts us and we can't see any way out of it. Somebody might say to us, have a little faith. It's an encouragement, but it is, as we all know, easier said than done. That brings us to the story of Gideon that we have before us this morning. A man whose faith is quite honestly something of a disastrous mess, at least here at the beginning of the story that we have recorded about him and in many ways throughout his life, but certainly towards the end of his life, it continues to be a mess. And yet, and yet, God uses this man, and what God specifically uses in this man is his faith. And so when we read the book of Hebrews, we see this man of whom we read all of these stories this morning commended as one who by faith acted on behalf of his God. So far in the book of Judges, at the first start of the Judges themselves, we were introduced to three people, to three Judges, to Othniel, to Ehud, and to Shamgar. And we saw them used by God. We saw them act to deliver, to save Israel, with no record of introspection. There's no record of any hesitation that they may have had about the call which they received or any doubts they may have had about it. We just hear their names, we hear that God raised them up, and then they did it, whatever it is. Last week, when we looked at Deborah and Barak, we were introduced to Barak, whom God will use, but we began to get just a little bit of a window into his life and into the hesitation that he might have as to whether or not he was the one in this present time, in this circumstance, to in fact deliver Israel, where he says, listen, I'll do it, but only if you, Deborah, will come along with me. But Gideon, Gideon's struggle with this calling that he has from God, his fight 
for faith is the substantive issue that we have set before us in Judges chapter 6. Once again, as we now know the pattern in this book, a crisis is at hand. Midianite raiders and their allies make these seasonal forays into the land. They come in just as the crops have started. They get whatever they can gather for themselves. They burn, they destroy the rest. The Israelites flee up into the hills. They're like swarms of locusts who come and devour the land and make the people to be afraid. And the reason that that is taking place is prophetically stated for us. It's in verses 7 through 10 in the section that John had read earlier for us. And it comes down to one simple phrase that is at the end of verse 10. This is taking place because you have not obeyed my voice. If you want to know why Midianites keep coming into your land, it's not because your border walls are soft. It's because you have not obeyed my voice. We expect to find right after this in the pattern of judges that we've seen so far that in light of that, God raised up Gideon. We might find a phrase just like this. And God raised up Gideon, and Gideon went in the strength of the Lord and defeated the Midianites, and the land had rest for 40 years. Instead, our author causes us to pause right at this place, and we are allowed to see, if you will, into the soul, into the circumstances themselves, into the struggle of faith that Gideon has in light of this call that God has given to him. So today, the way we're going to look at this is skepticism in the fight for faith, assurances in the fight for faith, and then first steps in the fight for faith. First then, we consider the skepticism that really is throughout the passage that we've got before us today. The whole thing seems to be characterized with a who who me attitude. Seriously, you want me to do this thing? Who's talking to me in the first place? Who are you? And are you sure that you have actually connected with the right person? That seems to characterize this would-be savior. Now, doubts related to God's call are not in any way unique to Gideon. I'm sure that almost everybody sitting in this room can relate some story of how they felt led, perhaps circumstantially, to serve in some particular way for God, and they were at that time consumed with doubts. They were skeptical about whether or not they should do a particular thing. We have experienced ourselves the symptoms that we can see here in Gideon's life. But it's not only that we have to look at doubt and skepticism within our own life regarding God's call. We can also see that this is a theme that is regularly brought up in Scripture. I alluded to this last week when we were looking at Barak and his struggles. But this is something that we regularly see. For example, we see some of the exact phraseology that is used by Gideon here in the mouth of Saul, when Saul is appointed by God, called by God to be king. We see a similar thought pattern in the prophet Jeremiah, 
if we see his reluctance to take up the mantle that God was giving to him. If we go to the New Testament, and again, I, I mentioned these last week, we can see this kind of thing in Zechariah when he hears what God will do through him. We can even see it, or at least elements of this, in Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she likewise struggles. But most particularly, when we've got this story of Gideon before us, the thing that surely would have been in the mind of an Israelite reading this is, this is kind of like Moses. This sounds a little bit like Moses when God is calling him to deliver the people and the various objections that he has to God's call on his life. So let's, I want to do this. I want to look at the anatomy of doubt that exists in this passage. And it's going to be easiest if you have your Bibles or bulletins open in front of you because I just want to work through some of these verses that when you put them all together, give us kind of a composite picture of this guy and of his fears and of his doubts. And it starts with the very first introduction to him in verse 11. We see that he was beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now the idea here is because these raiders were coming in and out of the land, that the, the, the processing of the wheat, getting out the chaff, throwing it up in the air, letting the wind blow away the chaff and the wheat settle down uh, onto the threshing floor, would have been most profitably done in an open place where you've got the wind that kind of comes and, and takes away that chaff. But that's not what Gideon is doing. He's in a concealed place. He's in, a, he's in an area that's a little bit depressed so that Midianites don't see. So they don't see what he's doing and come after that because that's apparently what Midianites and their allies are want to do. They come, they look for the stuff in the land, they look for the grain, they take it for themselves, they burn it, they get rid of everything else. And one might think, well, okay, that's good strategy, except when you then see kind of all of his life together, this idea of concealment, this idea of I don't want people to see what I'm doing, I'm kind of afraid of what might happen to me. I'm afraid of Amalekites and Midianites and others uh, who might be with him. It gives us a hint right from the beginning of the nature of this guy. And then verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now you kind of read that and you think, okay, what just happened here? Is, is this just a totally sarcastic comment about this guy who's, who's threshing grain kind of like this um, to conceal himself so that nobody can see him? Maybe. I, I think there's surely some irony that's going on at this stage in, his, in, in the conversation of God, the angel of the Lord with Gideon. But there's also hope. There's, there's this idea of what Gideon can be if in fact God is with him. There's an idea here that you're gonna be, you may not know it now, but you're gonna be a mighty man of valor. And the reason you're gonna be a mighty man of valor is because I'm gonna be with you, even if Gideon himself can't process it at this stage. And then we get this response from Gideon that is cynical. Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Note. The idea that Gideon has here is that, well, wait a minute, you're saying the Lord is with me, the Lord is with you. If that's the case, why is all this taking place? Gideon is a guy 
who has heard the stories of Yahweh. Okay, so somehow, somewhere in his life, that's part of his upbringing. He's heard about these stories, but note how he tells the story. He tells the story as if they came into the land, God led them into the land, they were being a faithful people, and lo and behold, God just up and left. God left the scene, and now here we are, made low, brought low, because God left us. What does he leave out? He leaves out the whole prophetic voice that says, you disobeyed God. See, he, he selectively tells a story, and you know, who of us hasn't done this? Who of us hasn't told a story in a way that makes it look like the other person was completely at fault and we hadn't done anything wrong? And that's exactly what he does here in this response. Verse 15, even despite the assurances that come, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He claims weakness. He claims insignificance. There's no way that he can do this. Now, one might wonder, is he telling the truth or not? Because his father, as the story moves along, seems to actually have a lot of prominence in this particular place. And Gideon is able to take ten of his servants and go up and take down the, the idols as he was commanded by God. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've got ten of your servants, at least you've got something. You may not be actually the least that is here, but at least Gideon wants to play it this way. It seems safer to play this off, whatever I'm being asked to do, I'm weak, my clan is weak and insignificant, there's no way that this can possibly take place. The story continues to go on. Verse 17, if I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who is speaking with me. There's doubt here, there's the request of a sign, and I want to be careful with this. Uh, requesting a sign from God, uh, at least for the people of the Old Covenant, was not always a bad thing for them to do. But nevertheless, it shows that he isn't convinced, he isn't sure, he's uncertain about this call, and so he seeks after a sign. When the sign is given to him, we see him being utterly afraid once again that this is the Lord in verse 22. And then when he takes up the task of destroying the Baal and the Asherah, we think to ourselves, good, he's making progress in his faith until, and this, this could have been, this is one of those things that could have been left out of the story, but the author puts it in and you got to perk your attention when you see it put in, but, we read, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Who isn't he afraid of? Might be a question to approach here. Gideon seems to be afraid of everybody, whether it's God, whether it's Midianites, whether it's his own lack of self-confidence that he has about himself, whether it's his family, whether it's the people of the town, he's afraid of everybody in the story. And then we come, of course, to the end of the story itself. We've got the fleece, which if we know anything about the Gideon story, we know about the story of the fleece. And it's simply another example of his hesitancy. He himself admits in the story that he is testing God. Now hopefully, hopefully we know enough about our scriptures to know that testing God is not good. You ought not do that. 
But he admits it straight up. This is what I'm doing. Can I test you one more time? And just to be clear, the idea here is not that Gideon is seeking to discover God's will. The fleece is not a means of discovering God's will. The question isn't, what does God want? God's will could not be clearer in this passage. There's no ambiguity about what God wants Gideon to do. This is about avoidance. This is about a lack of faith. This is basically, I don't want to do it, and I'm going to set up a test that I really don't think God's going to pass, and I won't have to do it twice. I'll set this up. All right, let me try to clarify this a little bit. Before God, there is an appropriate, a godly fear. It is reverential, it is deferential to God. It, it relates to the, the awe that we feel or would feel in the presence of God himself. There's a good and appropriate fear. Before God, there is also a good and godly humility that exists that, that would question oneself. And to give what I think would be a good biblical example of both of those, and I won't go into this in detail, but Mary is an example. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is, is an example of both of those things. She has an appropriate fear of God, an appropriate recognition of her insignificance. There's a godliness to her fear. There's a godliness to her humility. Gideon, on the other hand, is more negative. His fear is just fear. It's not like this reverential, honorable fear. He's just afraid of the situation that is before him and of everything in the story. And his humility is, oddly enough, a self-protective egotism. He's so absorbed with himself that he can't imagine that you can do something beyond yourself. Now, that's going to get flipped over as this story works its way all the way through to the end of his life. Ironically, if you're, if you're self-focused, you might be scared to death or you might be incredibly prideful. You might alternate between those two things, and we'll see that in his life here as we work through it. Gideon is skeptical, to say the least. If we were God, we might be tempted, I think, to agree with Gideon's self-assessment, with his demonstrated doubt, and move on to the next person. <laughs> okay, you're, you're right. You are absolutely right. You're not the person for this job. Can I have the next candidate? Send in the next candidate. Can I have the next resume? Eight, nine years, nine, ten years ago, some of you who are still here served on a pastoral search committee. And you were looking for a candidate. And how many resumes did you go through? 200 some? Two, two applicants? Is that about right? All right, so 200-ish uh, applicants. Next one. This is, this is not the guy. This is not the guy. This is, this is not it. All right, so somewhere along the way, after being tired of the search, I come into this process, and they're like, all right, we're taking the next guy. Um, and so somehow that takes place in God's providence. And, you know, we go through this process, this little, these little tests that are set up, these little preaching opportunities and things that go along the way, and the congregation votes. Now, 
you would probably like to think that I kind of walked away from a vote, whatever it was, seven and nearly eight years ago, it'd be eight years ago this summer. You'd probably like to think that I walked away from that encouraged, ready to take on uh, Christ the King. I was nearly catatonic, nearly catatonic. If you would have had video cameras on me, and if I would have been mic'd during that time, you know what you'd have said, search committee? You'd have said, guys, we made a mistake, next candidate. We're, we're going to the next guy, because we thought this guy was faithful and he's not. And I struggled. Should I, should I leave Ukraine? Should I go here? Um, and, I, and, I, and I was beating myself up. I was, I was being beat up in the situation until God raised a prophetess, my daughter, and she goes to me, Dad, you are just afraid. It's not a godly, no, she didn't go to this point. She didn't say it's not a godly fear. It's not a self-humility. You're just all wrapped up in yourself and you're afraid of this. Right upside the head. Oh, yep, wisdom. Wisdom just came flying at me out of, how old was she? 18, 19, no, 20, 19, 20-ish uh, when, uh, when that was taking place. Praise God, we're not God. God is long-suffering. God is patient. God is glad to use weakness. And so instead of using that same staff that burned up the offering or that caused the fire to come out of the rock, uh, instead of using that to burn up Gideon, which I think I would have been tempted to do, boom, to the offering, boom, to Gideon. Who's the next guy over there? Who's the older brother uh, in this place? Let me, let me see that guy. God instead provides to Gideon incredible assurances in light of his doubts, in the very face of his skepticism, his demonstrable, his repeated skepticism. God says, all right, I'm going to give you a bunch of assurances. Listen to these. Don't look at the passage right now, but just listen to this litany of what God does. He provides for him a theophany. The angel of the Lord is there communicating with him. This angel of the Lord gives the promise of God's presence, the promise of God's strength, I will be with you, is no small thing for God to say. Why? Because it is Moses-like, it is Joshua-like. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. Go and take the land. So I will be with you, Gideon. There's a clear commissioning here. There's no words that are minced here. There's no uh, fog of what the calling actually is. There's a clear commissioning, save Israel from the hand of Midian. There's a promise of victory. This locust horde-like group of Midianites that seems so formidable, so insurmountable to you, they're going to fall like one man. Like if, like if there was one man against you, and you knock that one man over, that's how these Midianites are going to fall. God agrees, I will provide a sign to you. And he consumes the meal with the fire that comes from the rock. And then right in front of his eyes, he disappears. And yet, having disappeared, the voice continues to speak to Gideon, promising to him peace, comfort. God preserves his life after the destruction of the idols. When it looks like all the town, all the people are going to come and they're going to kill him. God sovereignly preserves his life through the working, the intercession of his father. And in verse 34, God clothes him with his spirit. 
Now, just to be clear, when we hear that, we might think he became a very spiritual man at that point. That's not the idea of being clothed with the Spirit here. The idea more of being clothed with the Spirit is that it, it is demonstrated for us that God is getting ready to do something, and the person is being equipped for that particular task. So he is clothed with the Spirit, and the evidence of being clothed with the Spirit is when he sounds the shofar, when he blows the trumpet, people actually come. They don't leave him there standing alone. They all come from these various clans and tribes. And you kind of look around like, wow, okay, this worked. I sounded this. And the people come. The people have got gathered around me. But all of that is not enough. Gideon still puts God to the test. And almost unbelievably, almost unbelievably, God confirms miraculously not once but twice that you're the man, this is the task. That's 10 or 11, if you want to count the fleece twice, incredible assurances that God gives to this man so that he will act in faith. God does not leave us on our own to fight for our faith. No one is strong enough that they don't need assurances given from God. That's the beauty, part of the beauty at least, of that first catechism question. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life. That is what Christ does. He takes the Holy Spirit and he's assuring us, you have eternal life, you have eternal life, you have eternal life, you have me with you. That makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live him. So faith contends with our skepticism and faith is bolstered by God's liberally distributed assurances in our lives and Gideon's life. And finally, faith is fortified in the fight, in the first steps that God calls us to take. Before Gideon fights the Midianites, God provides a proving ground, a place where his faith might be tested. Down the road a little ways, Aberdeen Proving Grounds. A place where you can test munitions, you can test tactics, and you can see whether they're going to work or not. Gideon's proving ground for his faith is his own backyard. It's his father's house. It's where he's grown up. It's where he spent all of his time. Start with proving and honing your faith at home before you take on Midianites. Luke 16.10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful with much. You start small. God starts you small, starting at home, and then I'm going to have you take on the Midianites. Don't neglect to say it personally to us, your home, your heart, your relationship with the Lord in the name of some greater ministry. Many of you are involved in terrific and wonderful ministry, whether it's in the church or whether it's to uh, impoverished people seeking to have a better education, to young single parents, you're involved in great ministries to people within the community. But don't let that take you away from the necessity of a faith that is built 
with the Lord at home. But I want to be careful here, having said that. Having, having said that this is something of a proving ground, I now want to back off from what I've just said. Because God's call to Gideon to tear down his father's idols, to build there an altar to the Lord, is actually not merely a trial run. It's not simply a training exercise that exists. It's not tertiary. It's not even secondary. In many ways, this is the primary thing. Why? Because it is the root of the problem, even though Gideon hasn't seen that. He sees Midianites as the problem. Midianites are the symptom. The problem is what your dad has set up in your backyard. And that's gone on in family after family around Israel. This is actually what's going on. This is actually the problem. The disease is simply this, the violation of the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not make idols. What's going on with Israel, Gideon? That's what's going on with Israel. You and your household are worshiping false gods. You have put something in front of God. To be sure, that task, accomplished with a bull and ten men, was on a smaller scale than the Midianites. But actually, in reality, the destruction of idols and the worship of God, destroy the idols, worship God, establish an altar right on this place, burn the sacrifice with the wood of those idols. Actually, that's Gideon's biggest need. That's Israel's biggest need. That's our biggest need as well. Many of us can identify objectives targets, things that exist in this world where we'd like to see an impact. We'd like to see an end to human trafficking. We'd like to see an end to abortion. We'd like to see an end to, to, uh, to injustice. We'd like to see an end to poverty. We'd like to help women in difficult situations with young children. We'd like to get rid of some sin in our lives. We'd like to help people to grow in their faith. We'd, we'd like to help them to get rid of sin in their lives. We can see a whole range of targets, a whole bunch of objectives that are in front of us. We'd like to go out and remove these things and battle with these things, but the call of this passage ends up being to Gideon and to us, first things first and always first things first. Your fight within your family, in your heart, to remove idols is first. Weed and feed your soul. Don't hear me wrong, Midianites matter. Midianites are enemies, and Gideon's going to have to go out and fight Midianites. But at the end of the day, 
the victory that overcomes the world is this, our faith. That's what it said in 1 John, right on the front of the bulletin. What is going to overcome the world is your faith and fighting for your faith. Gideon had to fight for faith to do the will of God. We have to fight for faith to do the will of God. Even our Lord Jesus was troubled, and he was troubled in his soul before the great task that was set before him, and yet he did the will of God. To us, he provides assurance as we struggle Assurance in his incarnation and in his completed work. Assurance, as he says on the cross, it is finished. The enemies are defeated. He provides for us the promise of his presence through his spirit. I will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. The promise of his power. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. He assures us with his resurrection, with the promise of victory, through his words saying to us, if I'm for you, who can be against you? You are more than conquerors in me. And the promise of his return. If I go, I will come again. For now, be of good courage. For we walk by faith, not by sight. God has provided something better for you than theophanies, than rocks burning up offerings, than an audible voice from heaven. God has provided for you his word working through his spirit so that you can be assured so that we can be assured. And that is better than this. Does your faith sometimes doubt and become skeptical? So did Gideon's. Does your faith need assurance? So did Gideon's. Go out and take a first step, as did Gideon. And as to Gideon, so to the disciples, and so to you, as you battle, as you fight for your faith. Hear the promise, spoken by Jesus, spoken by the angel here. Peace be with you. Lord God, you know our hearts. You know how much we struggle with the faith, every single one of us in our own way, you know, the places where we doubt the most. Would you assure us even there? Would you be merciful to us? Through the power of your spirit, working with your word, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and his ascension into heaven, assure us so that in this world we can walk faithfully. Preserve our faith as Satan would seek to destroy it Preserve it. Grant us grace to walk in you, to believe in you to the end, so that Jesus, when you return, by your own work, you will find faith on earth.
Amen.